how we use language matters. In fact, it's really important that we're self-aware of the way we ourselves use language. Hello, this is Todd Littleton, Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. It's that podcast where we explore the themes of pastoring and theology and look for ways that it impacts the way we live our lives, engage our neighbors, and hope to have a positive impact on the world around us, particularly, in this case, in the name of Jesus. Today's a first. Today we have a crossover podcast. My friend Marty Duran over at the Fourth Estate wanted to have a conversation on how we use language. We take up a particular article that Marty called by Peggy Noonan, and we talk about the way uh, language is used to uh, make an ar- argument to, I think in some ways, incite a particular group. And, and then we talk about all the ways that, that maybe we encounter that, and not all the ways. We don't have enough time on a podcast to cover all the ways, but some of the ways that that shows up, uh, both in life and in the life of the church or the life of the minister or the life of the pastor. So I hope you enjoy this crossover. Marty and I talked about doing this from time to time. We're glad to have done it. If you have uh, no idea who Marty is, let me encourage you to subscribe to The Fourth Estate. Uh, Marty has a uh, brief description of the aim of his podcast. He generally is looking for uh, the facts behind stories and to correct a lot of uh, clickbait uh, information that we get in those accompanying articles. And he does a, a really good job. He does his best to be thorough, and he's always got a good uh, 12 minute podcast that he records on his way into Nashville a few times a week. So subscribe uh, on iTunes and give him a, a rating and a review after you've had a moment to listen and, and you discover the value that his podcast is. So without any further ado, uh, here is the First crossover podcast between the Fourth Estate and Pathological. Thanks for listening. Joined today by Todd Littleton, pastor in Tuttle, Oklahoma, city council member, podcaster, extraordinaire, blogger for millions of years, and a longtime friend. A very insightful guy, and I wanted him uh, on the Fourth Estate today to talk about specifically. Uh, the use of language. Uh, we're going to use an article. We could have chosen many. We'll use an article to get started. But uh, Todd, thanks for showing up. Hey, Marty. I uh, appreciate it. I would probably not be uh, into you know, blogging and doing a whole lot of podcasting if it weren't for you. So whoever hates it can blame you, not me, I guess. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll go with that. I'll go with that. <laughs> If you hate Todd, blame me. Vote for Todd as a vote for Marty. There you go. Oh, man. Um, well, I mean, you know, my podcast is kind of, uh, it kind of has to do with uh, facts and communication, and I work in communications. Uh, but honestly, anybody who's been a pastor for any length of time is uh, somewhat of a communications uh, amateur, if not professional. I mean, we work in the field of uh, talking to people and trying to get information across uh, in what we hope is an accurate way. 
and in discussions that you and I've had many times, uh, we've expressed concern, frustration, uh, use whichever adjective you like, uh, over the seeming inability of uh, the average, um, I'll just say evangelical, since that's kind of our tribe, uh, to kind of filter through information to get at facts. Um, and the language, of course, is part of that. So um, we, I sent you an article this morning from The Atlantic, and uh, honest to goodness, the subject matter, uh, I mean, it's about Trump and about Peggy Noonan, who's a speechwriter. Uh, it's not the personalities that I'm as concerned with as uh, kind of how the, the article by Peter Beinert uh, approaches language. Uh, and I know this is a uh, this is an area of interest for you. Um, he uses, just for instance, he uses the use of the word seems, S-E-E-M-S, uh, and how it allows wiggle room in an article where you can you can make an assertion that may not require any fact to substantiate it. If you use the word seems, then you, you've nuanced it in a way that allows you wiggle room about almost anything that you want to write. Do you see that as a problem? Sure, I, I really do. I, I have to confess that uh, sometimes in especially uh, online interactions, I will deliberately employ seams uh, in not in an attempt to avoid um, checking out facts or making hard statements, but instead to maybe come off less uh, dogmatic. Right, so I, yeah, so I found his uh, use of or, or his analysis of how seams worked in Peggy Noonan's writing to be quite intriguing and do think he makes a great point, especially when he is able to demonstrate or illustrate uh, by the lack of substantiation to many of Noonan's claims. Mm-hmm. And so it actually allows for future equivocation. Exactly. Exactly. In this particular uh, story uh, dealing with um, who comprises, what what are kind of the demographics uh, or characteristics of uh, people who are voting for Donald Trump. And, of course, that's been a huge area of debate um, over the last two or three months with every new survey or every new poll seeming to... uh, disprove or at least call into doubt the, you know, the most recent one before that. And, um, and I'm with you on the, the use of mitigating and nuance uh, in online discussion because uh, the quickest way, at least in my experience, the quickest way to demonstrate yourself a knucklehead is to continually make assertions that are factually incorrect. And you can mitigate uh, by using words like seems or, you know, I think or if I remember correctly uh, that allow you to present your case, uh, but allow that someone might correct a mistake that you've made. Uh, Noonan's use of the word seems uh, is quite obviously an attempt to avoid certain facts that would that would cause problems with the hypothesis that she's putting forward. Do you, I thought about this after reading and then knowing we're going to have a conversation. There's part of me, and this is maybe being a bit hypercritical, but there's part of me that considers this lazy. Mm-hmm. 
that if you're going to make claims and then use seams so that you avoid having to supply any supportive uh, facts as mm-hmm. you as you refer to them, um, it, it really just seems like who's got the time? I don't have the time. Okay, I'm just going to go with it. And yeah. I, and I and and I find the danger, at least in this particular media, that it's already prone to propagandish, um, manipulative uh, discourse. It makes this kind of egregious. Mm-hmm. So, what do you? I mean, you you really well, spend I'm the looking l- at. Uh- her, her use of, um, uh, he goes on to talk about her use of public furor. So uh, there's a particular instance where she says, uh, writing, I think she was in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the result has been widespread public furor over in the you know, crime, cultural dissimulation, fears of terrorism, et cetera. And the facts of the uh, instance on the ground were that crime is not uh, substantially higher in the area she was writing about, that cultural issues weren't as difficult uh, as she was making it to be. And the reality of terrorism, uh, though there is terrorism, uh, certainly wasn't related to refugees, as she was seeming to imply. Uh, and so the, she uses people's fear or people's concerns as a basis for establishing a fact so instead of establishing the fact, she uses the public concern as the establishment of the fact. Uh, and of course, that it, I mean, that's no different than saying um, there's, a, there's a, a limited but very strong concern that men never uh, have walked on the moon. And so since men have never walked on the moon, it's the same kind of thing. You're taking uh, a person's concern or a group of people's concerns and using the concerns, which may not be accurate or based in reality, as to establish your argument that you then move on to make, and I think that's really, really weak. Oh, yeah, and I think that I think that the uh, um, added danger is that you end up having uh, meaningless discourse because whatever it is that she feels necessary, or anyone who might do this feels necessary to assert. If you peel back the layer and it's empty in the middle, then all you're really doing is taking the concern and using it to whip people into a frenzy. And, um, and, and, and when you can get enough uh, likes, uh, retweets, um, shares, that sort of thing, then it, the truth really doesn't matter because your aim was to 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 play to that concern as though you've got a really core issue you're you're worried about. Yeah. And there was an yeah, go ahead. No, I and I was just going to say the, the the problem with that is it's so common that sometimes it's not even recognizable. Mm-hmm. People people rarely because we right now see are so polarized and so emotively driven that we don't pause long enough to say what really is she trying to get at? Because that, to me, after I read the article, is like, okay, so what's, what's really her core, uh, what, what's the substance of her argument? And yeah, if, if she's not trying to get at the truth, what is she trying to get exactly, at? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 
there was a, a, a similar story, um, not, not about Noonan. This was uh, more general uh, several months ago, maybe six months ago. Um, I, I can't remember. Maybe this was in the Atlantic. And it, it was uh, talking about the use of the word many in writing. So the way that you uh, establish dominance for your proposition is not to provide facts, but to use the word many. Many people believe many times, many this, many that. And just by using that word, inserting it into a sentence or inserting it into a paragraph or inserting it into an assertion, then you've automatically multiplied the impact of the statement and brought to people's minds that the people that the ones uh, pro- proposing this idea, whatever it might be, are more numerous than just the writer. Uh, and I've caught myself numerous times, many times, I'll just use the word, many times I've caught myself uh, in writing and knowing a particular fact, and I'll just make up something that, you know, that the sun is hot. Uh, knowing a particular fact, I'd studied it, I'd read it, but as I was writing, whether you know on my blog or whatnot, uh, I would use a word like many or most that I recognized immediately was not able to be substantiated by what I was going to pre- pre- present. And by using many or most, I, was, I would have been, I didn't do it uh, when I could catch myself, but I would have been overplaying my hand and implying that though I believed the sun was hot, that because many people believed the sun was hot, therefore the sun is hot. And, uh, and of course, the sun's not hot because I believe it's hot. The sun's not hot because many people believe it's hot. It's hot because it's a fact of physical science. And I think we run into, and again, going to the use of language, uh, we run into this over and over and over uh, in the online content where uh, statements are made. I saw just the other night on Twitter uh, a former state of Georgia, uh, U.S. representatives. This is not like a House state, you know, a House representative in the state uh, that represents 78 people in, you know, East Georgia or something. This is a guy who's in Washington, has been in Washington, D.C. And he tweeted uh, something to the effect of, you know, Hillary Clinton wants to open all the borders to all the refugees and, you know, 600 and something thousand refugees she wants to let in. Well, just ask the people in San Bernardino how that worked out. Well, here's a guy who was in Congress for a minimum of, minimum of two years, <laughs> you know, unless he quit in the middle of his first term. He was in there for at least two years and doesn't know the difference between an immigrant, a refugee, an asylum seeker, and a U.S. citizen, which is what one of the, the killers in San Bernardino was. And uh, this laziness, and as you call it, or, you know, apathy or lack of concern or intentional uh, muddying of language just to prove a point is uh, is getting, in my view, pretty dangerous. Oh, I, yeah, I couldn't help, um, since we're kind of going to, you know, treat this as a bit of a crossover podcast, immediately my mind races to our ecclesial experiences with many. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, you know, I don't know the math, but I'm pretty sure that combined uh, our years in uh, church leadership uh, exceed 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sadly, that tells people how old we are. But um, <laughs> I've uh, only been in ministry 10 years. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and, 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 he, and so in this vein, how many times 
do you recall being approached by, well, well, Pastor, many people are saying. Many people feel this way. And so, you know, uh, my, my mentor used to talk about the several family and the many family and that they're the most ubiquitous family in church life. Well, if Noonan's article gives us anything, we learn that that's beyond ecclesial. In other mm-hmm. words, it is part of public discourse that we are all a bit lazy, and rather than be more accurate in making an argument or appeal or even describing a thing, we all become cousins in the many family. And that um, we really... Um, are obscuring better communication. Uh, we're, we're, we're falling prey to very weak arguments. Uh, we're being uh, led in uh, such ways that it, it almost makes really good uh, intentions to get at the facts almost impossible. Um, one of the things uh, about the... the uh, Ever presence, if you will, or or the all too frequent use of many, um, leads us to the place where we really having uh, well, it just impairs communication. We we can't make good arguments. We can't even understand good arguments because uh, we are we are constantly being led around by this particular sort of discourse. So if we're wanting to draw some really good conclusions based on facts. Uh, even even in this election cycle that that were you know that prompted this sort of thing, what we really are are risking is being led by arguments made in the media or by our friends or whoever we've given authority over kind of our opinions um, to draw conclusions that can't be substantiated. Right. And and that's really really uh, dangerous. I think, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And that's, uh, I mean, just to play on the, the theme that you were singing a moment ago, uh, in church, it's the same way. Because when when the, the person representing the, the many family or the person representing the several family uh, comes to the pastor and the pastor then believes that report, um, then it affects the way the pastor thinks about church planning, thinks about his, his support, um, the how, how the congregation is viewed on Sunday morning. Where, where are these people who don't like me? Where are these people that think I'm doing a bad job? Uh, and, and so the, the implication of that bad information is exactly the same then as we face uh, in the, the secular world, the political world. Uh, you know, just to go in, push in a little farther, we were joking early on, this won't, just may not be on the podcast, we were joking early on about a, a vote for Todd is a vote for Marty and a vote for Marty is a vote for Todd. That whole nonsense that your vote, you know, counts for somebody else because uh, it's assumed by the person you're in conversation with or your online conversant that uh, you are automatically uh, taking a vote from their candidate when all of the facts, uh, if you go back to the election where Nader was involved, uh, interestingly, the, the two most prominent ones that come to people's minds are uh, 1980 when Nader was in the, the race and Gore lost Florida uh, by the skin of the Supreme Court's you know, teeth. And, uh, and then the other one would have been Ross Perot in Clinton uh, and Bush. And 
interestingly enough, uh, the American Spectator, which is a conservative uh, publication, debunked about uh, about last year, I think, the uh, the Perot and Bush scenario, saying that Perot took more voters from Clinton than he did Bush, and he also brought voters into the race that otherwise would not have voted. So it, there's never a one to one correlation. And then the Daily Kos did the same thing with the um, Nader and Gore, demonstrating that in Florida, which was the pivotal state, of course, that more liberals voted for Bush than voted for the other two candidates. Probably had something to do with, you know, I don't know. But anyway, I thought it was interesting that the conservative magazine debunked Bush, Perot, and the liberal magazine debunked uh, Gore and Nader. But when you try to... Uh, deal with this in conversation, it's like there's no moving forward because these, uh, in the case of who you're voting for, the binary, and in the case of uh, the scenario from 92 and from 80, um, the, was it 92? Oh, 92 and 2000. What is, um, we're, we're dealing with, uh, uh, we're dealing with a time when communication is of primary importance. So you want to say from the pulpit or you want to say from the state house or from the journalistic institute. Uh, when communication is of primary importance and it seems that we who are in the, the listenership, whether it's the congregation at church or uh, those listening to a political speech or those reading are, are not as uh, aggressively um, concerned with the nuance. We're not as aggressively concerned with the meaning of the language uh, and what it all represents. And uh, I, I think it, at least potentially, could pave the way for some very serious uh, distortion, propaganda, whatever you want to say, uh, in the future if we're not going to be willing to take seriously the use of language. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And you know, uh, it's not terribly complicated. Uh, for instance, uh, the same method to get through this um, gobbledygook, which is really what it boils down to. That's that's a term I learned in freshman English uh, in college. Uh, it, to get through it is is really the same. Let's find out how many. Uh, so whether it's in church work, which I tend to be prone. Uh, obviously, to um, experience this uh, the way that many is used, I just ask, so who are the many? And if I don't get really an answer, again, it becomes sort of veiled or opaque, then my experience uh, it tells me that I'm looking at the many. Mm-hmm. And, and so in, in a lot of ways, if you can't, uh, ver- verify, say in this illustration, uh, Noonan's uh, facts, then really what you are, are reading, you're reading the many. You, you're reading mm-hmm. the one who's making the assertion and, and she becomes the many. Mm-hmm. And in, in that vein, then, um, you, you can, I, you, it doesn't mean you completely dismiss maybe uh, what you think she might be aiming at, but you certainly don't put a lot of stock in her as a resource without going further and investigating much deeper. Yeah. And for your path theological audience, I would say uh, pastors who are listening to your podcast, uh, it's perfectly appropriate if somebody comes to you and, and speaks of the many 
um, to either ask who are the many because I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel it's right for me to talk about other people's opinions without them being here. And if the person declines to name the many, then one way to go ahead and find out what the issue is is to just mitigate the whole thing by saying, well, rather than talking about what these other people are concerned about, why don't let's just have a conversation, you share your concerns, and then if at some point they decide to come to me, then you know I'll, I'll talk to them as well. And that way you've kind of sort of let them off the hook uh, for being guilty for lying. And at the same time, you actually get to hear their concerns, maybe more open than they would have been if they were hiding behind the veil. Um, I, I don't know how we how we can transfer that to, to the wider society when you've got all these competing voices and and uh, multitude of you know, commentary and all of that kind of thing. It's not like you know we can stand up to the White House press secretary and say, "Hey, by the way, you know you're only speaking for yourself right now because the president says something different 30 minutes ago." Um, but but I think the the onus is going to be on as long as we have the internet and as long as we have the ability to search the world's knowledge with a click, then the onus is going to remain on the consumer of information to track down the facts as best they can. Yeah, I think you're right in that in that regard. I, I, I know this may be a tangent, but but I think it's worth at least considering that's this. You know, one of the ways you could in public discourse uh, try to get at what you can't do um, as you would say in, an, in a church setting, in a, in a pastoral setting that you described really well what, what you could do, is m- when I read that and was thinking about what we might talk about and, and, and really what, what we were going to do with the language, Noonan, Noonan presents a context. So here's the fascinating thing. Uh, again, I, I know we don't care to explore completely, you know, the, necessarily the subject content, but, but she's almost defending a particular demographic, which, mm-hmm. in my estimation, actually doesn't represent her demographic. That's exactly right. So <laughs> it, it seems to be a, a contradictory move, because for mm. her to take up for the particular demographic that she writes about actually undercuts her standing in society and wider culture, because if that particular group had their way, she wouldn't be writing. Mm-hmm. So I think at that particular point, when we encounter that, we could actually take a step back and go, well, let me find out what this particular person's commitments might be. Or at the very least, that demographic, the way she's portraying them. Correct. If, if that demographic is actually as she says they are. Correct then, you know, she's the hoity-toity. She's part of the problem. She's not part of the solution. Correct. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. Well, dude, on my end, I think dinner is ready. All right. Well, dinner is always good, and uh, having a conversation with me doesn't uh, rise to the level of missing dinner. But we ought to, we ought to do this again. I think this, is, uh, this makes for an interesting um crossover you I do next too. Time, uh, i'll be willie nelson and you can be shania uh, there you go and, all right um, <laughs> that sounds like a plan all right thanks good talk good to you bye bye hey thanks for listening hope you enjoyed the show as always we'd really appreciate it if you'd click over to itunes and give us a five-star rating and take some time and leave us a review if you found this podcast helpful uh go back and check out some previous episodes Uh, do us a favor and share the podcast. It's one way we get the word out. 
of what we're trying to do here on Pathological. So if you have a pastor friend or your pastor and you'd like them to maybe benefit, we hope certainly that we're offering some things that would be helpful along the way as they think through their work. But if you happen to be a person who recognized that uh, pastoring is really something all of us do, that is we all often have and show care toward our uh, friends, our neighbors, those around us, and maybe the themes here that we pick up, the theological themes, the themes related to God in His activity in the world, will be a benefit to you in your work and showing care and love to your neighbor. I'm looking forward to the next couple of podcasts. We're going to have Blake Oakley, who's been on a pilgrimage on the Camino del Emigrante out in California from Tijuana to Los Angeles. We're going to uh, have that podcast up next week. And then uh, after that, we're going to have Tier Hardy. I uh, will have uh, Bat the Cycle with the uh, host over at Crackers and Grape Juice when Tier Hardy and I talk uh, about relationship and how that factors into really uh, all of the ways in which uh, ministers, pastors uh, are um, trained and uh, are mentored and are encouraged in all that they do. And then uh, once I get a hold of my friend George Young, we got a podcast started and got interrupted, and we'll get back on the podcast. We're going to talk about race in Oklahoma. There are some others on the horizon, but those are what the ones that lie ahead. And as always, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, Pathological is an affiliate podcast with Roundtable Media Group. And if you've always uh, wanted to start your own podcast but never uh, sure how or where to start, we'd love to help you out. You could email me at Todd at RoundTableMediaGroup.com. You, there you could find a, a host of our uh, affiliate podcasts as well as our hosted podcasts, and uh, you'll find some great stuff over there. If you're looking to advertise uh, across all of the affiliate podcasts as well as the produced podcasts with Roundtable Media Group, you also email me at Todd at RoundtableMediaGroup.com and we make it well worth your while. So, again, this has been Todd Linton, Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Thanks for listening and peace.